Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 23 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing who folks for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 23 of our awesome podcast, we are going to be talking about, talking about several things that are awesome, including a brief review of the scramble meet that was just a couple of days ago, which was awesome. And we're also going to be doing a review of chapter two. We were going to try to do a podcast before the scrambled meet to sneak in a chapter review of, of John chapter two before the meet because we were scrambling or quizzing on chapters one and two. We didn't get to it. So we're going to try to get to it today. And then we're going to kind of go through a bit of a smorgasbord of questions and things and concepts and ideas. We've got a, a question that came into the uh, our email address at iq at cbqz.org that we're going to cover. We're going to talk about a couple of specific questions that come from the John material, one from John uh, chapter 1, one from chapter 12. And we're going to be talking about some uh, quizzing and sort of practice thoughts around how to prepare uh, a little bit more effectively and how to quiz a little bit more effectively, and probably a few tangents along the way. So before we get into the uh, meet that was, uh, the scramble meet from a couple of days ago, uh, let's talk about our uh, memorization schedule and meet schedule for this season. So Scott, what do you want to talk about here? Hmm, well, I'm not sure. I guess we can start with our material for the first meet. So our first meet is second weekend of October, and we're covering the first five chapters of John, which is 212 verses. So um, I've heard from at least one other one person that the first couple meets of John were some of the hardest they have had to study for because of how much material is there. And it's really no different this year. We try to smooth the material as much as we can throughout the year, but there are 878 verses to memorize. We're kind of assuming no one's starting before September. So if you take September through March, um, what's that, seven months to memorize 878 verses? So you're doing four a day, roughly speaking, for that whole time period. Uh, And we start right off the bat, those 212 verses for the first five chapters. So quizzers need to be diligent. And it's nice if they are well studied for that first meet to get a nice meet under their belt, because then it means that meets two and three, they can take it a little bit easier knowing that they get to drop their worst average from the first three meets. Because I'd say meets one, two, and three, even though they're the most spaced out quiz meets of the year, there's a lot of material there to memorize. And I think it's hard work. And so um, it pays to start strong but also not start super overly crazy motivated strong because then you'll burn out early in the year. Yeah, totally agree. You want to set up a pace for yourself, even if you have to let a few verses slide uh, in the in the material. And you're right, you know, you, you want to get yourself to, you know, about four, maybe a little bit higher than that verses a day uh, as an average, uh, which can be daunting if you're not used to that. But start small, right? You know, start with a verse a day, then work up to two verses a day, and then three verses a day. And you'll be surprised, I think, if you haven't done that before, that if you're really routine about it, you can actually memorize a whole lot more than you think is possible. It just requires, you know, setting aside, you know, 15 minutes to a half hour a day and just putting in the time. And, and working your way through it. But then, I mean, if you do that, even, even just start with a verse a day, uh, which is totally reasonable for, to, to do. I think any, just about anybody in the program can do that. If you're working in it diligently, you're going to end up being able to add, you know, an extra verse and kind of keep growing and growing and growing. And here's the other thing about having so much material in the year. 
if you memorize less than the whole material, I think there's actually a greater opportunity to get questions in a material year that is larger because everyone else is also uh, daunted by the material as well. So there's going to be more opportunities, a little bit slower pace on average. I mean, certainly there's always going to be the folks uh, and the teams who are memorizing all of it, and they're going to be just as fast as ever. But I think there's more opportunity in call it the middle tier of quizzing, where if you can just get one or two verses a day, I think you can start competing very, very effectively. Definitely. In a large material year like this, um, you can memorize less, a smaller percentage of the material than normal and do just as good. I totally encourage people who aren't going to memorize the whole material to skip whole chapters and to make sure that they memorize whole chapters. And I even heard of one tactic that a quizzer always mem- starts with the last chapter of the new material because they theorized that it would be the least well-known chapter among all of the quizzers as it's the last thing that most people will learn. And so they would learn it first. And there's all kinds of ways like that to be creative about how you study to help get yourself a small edge. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, I would start with either the last chapter or maybe the second to the last chapter uh, and then kind of expand from there. But definitely I would memorize a full chapter. I wouldn't I wouldn't pick like the first 10 verses of each chapter and go through every chapter. I think you're going to be able to be more effective if you can't get all of the material to memorize full chapters of material, I think the context of that will be a lot stronger for you for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about before, uh, not the least of which will be uh, chapter reference questions and chapter verse reference questions from the, the chapters that you have memorized. So we've got, so we just had the Alliance Bible uh, meet on, you know, like I said, this last uh, Saturday. So that was September 15th. We've got the Eastridge Baptist Church meet EBC coming up on October 12th and 13th. Then we are back to ABC because ABC is so awesome. We can't only go there once uh, this year, but we're going back to ABC for the November meet. That's November 16th and 17th. And then we've got a month and a half break, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, but we've got a lot of material, um, 228 verses to go between November 16th and 17th and the next meet, which is going to be January 4th and 5th down in Dallas. Yep, that's always the hardest meet to schedule every single year, or the hardest material to schedule because there's that giant layoff from November to January. It's over the holidays. Kids are um, out of school for a period of time, and it's just so hard for people to keep memorizing because they have less structure, uh, a less frequent meet, and a lot of other things going on taking their attention. But there was just a large preference to have that meet in November rather than in the first weekend of December. And so if you're not having it in the first weekend of December, you're not going to have it between, you're not going to have it after uh, Thanksgiving. And you don't really want to have it right before Thanksgiving. So that's how we kind of end up in the middle of November. But I always viewed those sorts of time periods as my time to really get ahead because I knew it was difficult for everybody. And so if you are interested in working a little bit harder or really just keeping whatever pace you were on, I think you can zoom ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great opportunity uh, to really study hard. Like, And I'm not suggesting that you don't study effectively the rest of the year, but if there's only one block of time where you're going to study, you want to make it the no- between November and January meets time. Um, it's just sort of like the same idea. Everybody else is going to be uh, daunted by it, slowed down a little bit by it. If you can add an extra 10%, that's going to pay huge dividends 
not just at the Dallas meet, but the remainder of the meets of the year, you'll, you'll get a very strong boost thereafter. The other thing to remember is, uh, you know, the individual averages are, are weighted. Uh, you know, like, like Scott was saying, you can drop your weakest meet, but the, uh, the value of each of those meets increases towards the end of the year. So if you get off to a rocky start for the, you know, the, let's say, you know, East at EBC, you get off to a kind of a rocky start. Uh, and at the next sort of Alliance Bible Church part two, uh, quiz meet in November, it's a little bit better, but it's still, you're kind of feeling a little bit behind the curve. Don't let it get to you. Use the break between November and January as an opportunity to, Put in a little extra, little uh, you know, ten percent over the top, and that's going to pay dividends through the rest of the meet uh, calendar. So when we head into uh, the meet, district meet number four, that's going to be in February, uh, the first or near the first week of February, or the end of the first week. It's the eighth and the ninth of February at Lighthouse in Puyallup, and then the uh, final district meet, dis- district meet number five in, in Madras down in uh, Oregon on March 15th and 16th, those meets matter more to you in terms of individual average than the earlier meets. And so that's a way to, you know, don't get discouraged if things don't seem to be kind of getting into a groove early in the year. Uh, let the let the process kind of unfold. Just stick with it. Try to try to get onto a schedule, you know, a couple of verses a day and kind of keep working that rhythm and then add to that rhythm as you go throughout the year. Yeah, if you're interested in making Great West, meets four and five are constitute two-thirds of your average for making that meet. So it's a ton. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely a ton. <clears throat> we are still looking for a host uh, for district championships. We're, we're pegging April 26th and 27th uh, as a date on the calendar, but we don't have a location. But the date itself is a little bit flexible, not a ton flexible, uh, but it is a little bit flexible, right? Um, a little bit. A very little bit. I like. I think you were saying it can get pushed into the first weekend in May if we had to, right? Yep, and I think that's the only change that we could make. Ah, fun times. Well, we are still looking for a location for that, um, so stay tuned for that. If you know of a location, uh, you know, please let us know. Uh, Great West, uh, as Scott said, probably going to be in Canada. Very likely going to be in Canada. Uh, date and location, uh, TBD, and then internationals is in Orlando, which is actually where I was born. Um, so that's, uh, that's an interesting place to be for internationals. And I, that's where I think they're putting it in, in Orlando because of life, right? That is right. Very cool. Well, anything else to throw in there for about the schedule? I don't think so. All right, cool. Well, scramble meat, the meat that was, was very awesome. Uh, so Scott, what were your kind of thoughts about scramble? I thought it was great. We had a lot of quizzers there. I restrained myself and did not put the maximum number of quizzes possible into the schedule. And I think it made for a little bit more laid-back meet for everybody. Uh, And we also had two new quizmasters who did fantastic. And so I think it was a really good meet for acclimating for both quizzers, new coaches, new quizmasters, new other officials – and then a really good meet for learning. And I think everyone had a really good time. Yeah, I want to second the uh, plus plus points to the two new quiz masters and to Cuddy, who is, you know, not a new quiz master, but she did a great job, too. I think our quiz masters were fantastic. Uh, there were uh, we had some uh, scorekeepers coming in for the first time in a couple of the different rooms who did a great job. 
Uh, and, and I think that worked out really well. I was really impressed with how everybody pulled together, especially given a little bit of the chaos at the beginning of the meet. So one of the things that we did at Scramble is we used uh, CBQZ to run the quizzes in the quiz rooms, which, you know, we had done that uh, last meet last year that was at, at, we did that at district championships. We used C, uh, CBQZ, but I've, I've added things to it, uh, like a, a scoreboard and um, scorekeeping functionality and so forth. And uh, none of the quiz masters prior to the actual scramble meet had been trained on it or knew anything about it, had never even seen it. And so at the very beginning of the meet, I'm, I'm showing them how to, to make it work. And then, wouldn't you know it, uh, it failed. It crashed uh, right before we were about to start uh, quizzing. And so uh, we ended up having to do, or I ended up having to do a little bit of debugging. Uh, I made all of the mistakes. So this is a great thing. I, I, what did I learn from Scramble? Don't act like a junior developer because I, I've been doing software engineering for, I don't know, 30, 35 years or something like that. I mean, since I was in junior high. And uh, I made all of the classic junior engineer mistakes all at once, which was like, don't fully test something, launch it out in production, don't verify that it works in production, and take it to a mission-critical event where you don't have any time or resource to actually fix it uh, if anything goes wrong. Also, don't have any backups, uh, don't have any other failover options, uh, and and put all of that together, and it turned out to be a, a rather stressful, uh, a rather stressful ten minutes or so uh, trying to get things working. But we did we did sort it out. So I mean the the meat worked very well. But I got to have like huge kudos to the quiz masters who just sort of rolled with the punches and actually made things work. And uh, it was it was fantastic to see. I totally agree. It was good that they were working to make sure they knew how everything worked and then raise the question when it didn't work as they had expected, which did give us some time. Yeah, it was great. Anything else from Scramble? Apart from it was just great to see everybody, of course. Yeah, I'm looking at the stats that I have here. Everyone as a whole was at 78% accuracy. Um, we only had eight bonus questions at the meet. I guess we only had 20 quizzes, though. The Quizmasters were all right around, right between 72 and 80% accuracy in each of their rooms, and they had kind of various teams coming through their rooms and um, were kind of ruled is not the right word I'm looking for, but we have two very, very large programs that constitute the bulk of our quizzers. So between Lighthouse and ABC, they got um, 212 of the 303 correct questions at the meet, um, and nine of the 11 third-person bonuses. Wow. Yeah, um, I'm looking at... We did have three fouls called at the meet, which I'm, I'm usually I'm usually happy to see a few because it means that quizmasters are willing to, to call them. Looks like um, they were all handed out by our new quizmasters. Micah handed out two, and Kendra handed out one. Very cool. Very cool. But other than that, I thought it was a great scramble. We had the rookie workshop, which is a great time for the rookies to learn. They got to have quizzing amongst themselves, which is a good way to get started. And our top three junior division teams got to quiz in room one with all of the big audience and the cheering, and they had some coaches help them out, and so kind of got a sense for all of that. And so I think they had a really good time. 
Yeah, I was particularly impressed with quite a number of rookie quizzers coming in this year. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are. I don't want to say any names and embarrass them or anything like that, but I, there were, uh, there was more than one, let's say, uh, quite a number, but uh, more than one, uh, rookies I had never seen before and uh, never heard their names before. And I was quite impressed with what they did at this first meet. It was an interesting meet. Rookies can be, it's hard to tell from the scramble meet. Usually there are younger siblings of quizzers of current quizzers, and so you recognize them, and oftentimes they are very good, because if you come from a family that knows about quizzing, you don't have to learn everything from scratch. Um, And we didn't really have that this year. A lot of them are um, either new quizzers, or their older siblings are not super, super, super top quizzers. But as a whole, the rookie averages were a little bit lower. Usually we have a handful above... 60 or even above 70, and we had one average above 50. And it wasn't 86.67. It was a very, very good average. Mm-hmm. But usually there's a little more um, spread up at the top and a couple people close to that top average, and there, there really wasn't. And it's always interesting to see how, it, how these rookies do at the first meet because they have to continue to learn material, three more chapters for the first meet. And quizzing is just much different when everyone is quizzing together versus the rookies just against the rookies. And so it's not uncommon to see a rookie average an 80 at the scramble meet and then average a 10 at the first meet. And it's it's just kind of which ones really stick with the material, which ones get good coaching that encourages them. Because it really just comes down to how much material do you know, especially at the scramble meet when the rookies are against other rookies. None of them really know about reference questions or syllable counting or anything of that nature. And the kids that score the most are almost always the ones who know the most material. And it usually holds true as the year goes on, even though there are veterans who can know less material, but because of their expertise can snipe in for questions here and there. Yeah, totally. Well, let's uh, let's move on to our chapter in review. Uh, John, chapter two, we were going to try to squeeze this in, like I said, prior to scramble. So we're a little bit behind the curve here. So, uh, Scott, what are your thoughts about chapter two? It's a nice short chapter, and it's a memorable story. And, well, it actually has two memorable stories in it. And it has, I guess, not a lot of key verses. One, two, three, four, five, seven key verses out of 25. So a little bit more than 25% of the verses are key. But it's a good chapter. There's, from just looking at it visually, there's a very good spread of unique words and chapter unique words. There's not a whole lot of um, hard-to-memorize verses without a whole lot of memorable content in them. And there's going to be a mix of question types from this chapter. There's definitely great situation questions. There's different key verse types. And I see easy opportunities. Well, easy opportunities to write pretty much every other question type. So it's kind of a nice little chapter. I think if you're studying references, this would be an awesome chapter to target. It's going to be short for chapter references. There's only four verses after verse 20, and that's when it can get really problematic for chapter verse references. And so I think this if you're not choosing to memorize the whole material but kind of want to dip your toes in the reference question world, memorizing chapter two would be a great, great start. I totally agree. Um, there's a couple of things that kind of jump out to me, uh, you know, relative to chapter one. It feels like chapter two has just a few bit more unique words. So, you know, watch out for those. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned at the quiz meet, you know, one little trick that some 
quizzers use when they're memorizing is to snap their fingers when they cross over any unique word, sort of help them ground that word in their memory a little bit. Those unique words are important. Uh, you know, uh, t- uh, chapter two, verse six, 20 to 30 gallons, 20, 30 and gallons, all key. Uh, there's things like that that just sort of jump out at you where there's going to be quite a number of very straightforward, obvious, uh, very, very rapid questions that can come out of this stuff. So basically, I think that the, when the, the material gets more key, I think the speed of the questions go up because we can get uh, very, very accurate uh, with um, much fewer syllables. Like, uh, you know, take a look at verse 15 as, as an, another example. You know, so he made a whip out of cords. So whip and cords are unique and drove, drove unique, all uh, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. Uh, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So there's, you know, a couple, lot of uh, unique words there. There's a lot of multiple answer opportunities there, right? So he what for the second half? Uh, chapter, no, could you do that? He made a whip out of cords and drove. So no, actually, how would you do that? Could you do a... Could you do a chapter reference on 215 and say he what and actually get all of those, just about everything in that verse except the word so? Yeah, you probably could. It would have to be a chapter verse reference multiple answer because he yeah, appears yeah. elsewhere in the chapter. But you you could. I think a chapter verse reference multiple answer he what from 215 would require the whole verse to be quoted. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, chapter only reference on the word both uh, would be a multiple answer. Both what? Uh, sheep and cattle. So there's a, a lot of different uh, multiple answer options, a lot of different uh, you know, key question options, a lot of chapter reference options. Uh, so very interesting stuff there. The other one to the, the other sort of caveat in tour here is be careful on jumping. If you're a key verse specialist, be careful with chapter two, verse 20 F. Uh, so 24 and 25, both are key. Um, of course they're actually, this is mad. No, I take that back because they're, those are a, uh, they're linked up together. So there will never be a 25. There will only ever be a 24. So you're safe there, actually. Um, uh, let's see what else is interesting there. Verse 19 with a finish this. Verse 17 with a finish this. Zeal for your house will consume me. I've got to imagine that zeal and destroy are going to be key very, very fast at this first meet for finish this is. Yeah, zeal definitely. Uh, I don't even, I don't even know if there's any other Z sort of. Uh, word that actually works. There's not a way in CBQZ to search like only keepers questions, is there? No, not yet. Although that would make for a good feature request. I wonder if that fits better with uh, some of the study functionality that has been proposed, like flashcards or note taking. Yeah, yeah, very well could be. Very well could be. Whenever I studied, I would always grab the reference material first, which is this color coded material, and I would just kind of read through it and look for things and things. Like, I would look at all the unique words and say, which one feels the least like a unique word? So I'd, I'd read through it, and I'd be like, till, T-I-L-L. That feels the least like a unique word, so I'm going to make sure that I know that it occurs only once. Or I'll look and see, oh, the word drawn. In this case, it's drawn the water, but if I just heard drawn what, I might think of drawing or sketching. And so I'd say, oh, this is a different meaning of this word. Let me fix it in my head. Or... I'd look at words like remembered is a keyword or a unique word. And then I might search remember 
and see if that word appears anywhere else in the material or if um, jumping on remembered is always going to be this one. And I just kind of be curious and do these little tests reading through it. I would see um, while he was in Jerusalem, um, there's no coloring there except for the word while, which is a chapter keyword. So maybe I'd search while he was where. Or, so I just search while he was and see, does that three-word phrase appear elsewhere in the material? I see six stone jars. Maybe I would start searching the material for the other numbers, like one, two, three, four, five. Because all of these little things become memorable in your brain. They um, connect and form little links. You know, make it a list of the people in this chapter. Make a list of the places, you know, all those proper nouns. All of those things are forms of study. They keep the material interesting to you, and they force your brain to think about it. And it can be really helpful to memorizing verses even before you sit down to say, I want to memorize verses 1 through 8 right now. And just kind of read through it. Be curious. Maybe um, call up your friend and talk about, you know, some of the the verses and how they're constructed and just any thoughts you have as you're reading through them for the first time. Yeah, totally agree. Well, let's move on here. We've got a fair number of things to try to get through in the time we've got remaining. So, um, Scott, let's uh, kind of walk through some of the stuff that you've got listed on here. Um, why don't you just kind of walk through your notes that you've got here and tell us what you're thinking. So this first thing is about inflection. So when people are speaking the, the English language or probably any language, we like to end sentences or complete thoughts on kind of a downbeat. So you maybe you, you've run across the rare people who will end every sentence on an upbeat, and it sounds like everything they're saying is a question. Now, thankfully, those people are in the minority, and most people just in their way of speaking, they, they say, hello, how are you today? And that today ends on a down, kind of a lower note, and not, hello, how are you today? Um, and that's just how people speak, most people speak normally. And it's, it's one reason why I encourage Christmasters to just read questions in a conversational tone, not thinking about the like inflection or anything like that. Just read them conversationally because as humans, we've listened to other people speak language since we were born and we intuitively pick up on these little, very common ways of speaking. So the way that this, it sounds very technical and specific, but there's a one place that really helps you in quizzing and it's on quote questions and chapter verse reference questions. So if a quiz master is saying, Quote John chapter 1, verse 8, that 8 they will say on a downbeat, unless they are actively trying not to, which shouldn't happen, but they, they'll say it on a downbeat. Quote John chapter 1, verse 8, and that 8 is kind of coming down. They won't say verse 8. Now, if they're saying, quote John chapter 1, verse 18, um, they usually come down on the teen, but up slightly on the 8, and your language kind of goes up and down, up and down. And so you're you're kind of walking backwards from the last syllable to the word verse. And so if the quizmaster goes up a little bit on verse, they're probably going down on the next syllable, meaning it's the last one. So verse eight. But if they kind of go even or um, up on or or down on verse, they're probably going for eighteen. Um, and it's kind of a little clue, and as you, you just listen to people talk and listen to Quizmasters read references, you start to slowly pick up, and you'll get to a point where if you hear verse, you can close your eyes, you'll know what's coming next. You'll know it's going to be verse 24 or verse 1. 
um, based on how that word verse is said. How did I explain that, Griffin? I think that makes perfect sense. I totally agree. Um, and uh, I, I think I would sort of expand on what Scott said a, a, a bit and say there are far too many quizzers I see that aren't absolutely obsessed with the mouths of the quiz masters. Uh, you, you should just stare like with laser beam eyes at their mouth uh, and, and, and exactly where their lips are and what shape their lips are making and, and what shape they're about to make. Uh, because like if you can and it's and it's not something that you'll hear, uh, you can pick up an extra syllable uh, most times, more times than not, just by watching and combining that with what you hear. Definitely. There were times when I was coaching internationals that I, I knew some of the material, and so I would quiz for a short time with the quizzers, and I would get comments about how intense my stare was at the quizmaster, and it's because I was trying to zone everything else out and get as much information I could, because when you're jumping at those two-syllable speeds, if you see a mouth shape or hear a tiny bit of the next word, it's a massive change in your chances of getting the question right. So I encourage people, like, you can Google about voice inflection and stuff like that, but really, I would just be very specific and focused when you're listening to Quizmasters read these questions and just be curious and see what you can hear, see if you can see differences, because this kind of thing comes easier to some people than to others. But for everybody, the more you concentrate and focus you'll start to pick up on more and more little things. Now, when it, and I've actually found that there are some quiz masters who know this and will try to help kind of help the quizzers out and exaggerate it. They'll say, quote John chapter 1, verse 8. And this can be helpful, but as a quizzer, I almost found it more stark and like obvious when the quiz master wasn't trying to make it obvious just because of how natural it sounds. We're so used to listening to other people talk. Um, and the cadences and the inflections are just kind of understood subconsciously. And so if someone is not thinking about inflection, if some quiz master is not thinking about it at all and just reading a question, this inflection comes through loud and clear. And it's incredible to me how obvious it is when someone isn't trying at all. Now, so that's on chapter verse references, chapter verse reference, multiple answers, and quote questions. But there's quote these two verses. And... The interesting thing about these is you don't say the word verse. You say the word verses. And I've found that for whatever reason, well, of course, if you're saying, well, if you're saying verses, you're saying multiple syllables after because you're going to say at least three, like seven and eight or one and two. And you might say as many as seven, right? 23 and 24. Well, because of this, um, there really isn't anything in how the word versus is said that will help you out. Um, it's just too far before the ending syllable. And so you have to be extra, extra diligent on your jump on quote these two verses because you will get zero information until the quiz master is starting um, the verse numbers. So if it's, a, if it's just a quote question and you're deciding between 4 and 14 – how the Quizmaster read verse gives you information. But if you're jumping on a quote, these two verses, and you have to decide, but let's say you jump on verses four, and you don't know if the Quizmaster was saying four and five or 14 and 15, there's no information that you get from how verses is said. And so you have to be extra, extra diligent that you get pretty much one full syllable 
after verses on quote these two verses. And now that is only if you know that the chapter has multiple that can conflict verbally like that. It could be like, and actually let's look at this chapter that we're in right now, Griffin. We have verses 14 and 15 and verses 24 and 25. So if you hear, quote these two verses question, quote John chapter 2, as soon as you hear that too, you know that you can jump right after verses is being done said because you will get either an F kind of shape or a TW kind of shape, and you'll know at that point. But if there are chapters where there's maybe multiple in the 20s that are quote these two verses questions, um, you have to be really diligent if you want to have certainty over which one it's going to be. Yeah, it makes total sense. Coaching dilemma questions for you, Griffin? Should we move yeah. on? Yeah, let's move on and uh, hit me with your best shot here. We were thinking, uh, Scott and I, before we started recording here, we were thinking we should do a, a section on you know how to coach effectively, and I couldn't think of any good advice to give that I hadn't already provided in previous uh, episodes. So Scott is going to throw various dilemmas or hard questions at me in real time, and I'm going to have to think on my feet, and we'll see how things go here. No no promises, but uh, let's rock. So let's say we're quizzing within our, within the district, and we're on question 18 of a quiz, and I have two good quizzers that I'm coaching, and they both have one or two right, and they would love to quiz out in this quiz. But at this point, it is impossible for both of them to do so. How do you coach them through this? Is this prelims? Is it in brackets? Um, and then tell me a little bit more. Is it it's a four-person team, you said, right? Let's say it's a four-person team, but you've got two real standout quizzers. And let's say um, the outcome of the quiz is not in question. Okay. How have my third and fourth chairs been doing so far in the meet? And is this brackets or prelim? It's prelims. And the third and fourth chairs are good for maybe one correct question every four quizzes or so. Okay. Well, then I would generally just recommend to everyone to jump their best. I wouldn't tell anybody to hold back. Um, I wouldn't tell anybody to be aggressive. Like, I wouldn't say, like, you know, risk more than your target cadence. I would say, like, whatever your target cadence is for, you know, a number of syllables or how fast you're going to jump or whatever you're feeling for this particular quiz, stick with that. Uh, everybody try to get up, try to get a question. I try to be encouraging to the whole team um, in that particular context. That's going to be highly predicated, though, on the long game, I think. And, and and what I mean by that is, you know, where we are right now as a team of four with those, you know, first, second, and third and fourth uh, chairs, what do I think? Is there anything that I think can happen on question 18 that could kind of bolster up the energy for, say, a third chair. So if I can get either the third or fourth chair to jump, uh, you know, on 18, 19, 20 or something like that, and they can get it, get a third a third person bonus, I'm assuming they haven't gotten any questions yet in the quiz, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if I can, if I can get one of them to get up with a third person bonus... Uh, that really, I, I've seen it really invigorate and, and encourage both the individual quizzer who gets it, but also the team itself. And so like, you know, if, if chair three gets it, then chair four is motivated and vice versa. And it also, it, it makes chairs one and two feel particularly happy. They're like, great. That's awesome. Our team is doing better. Um, that sort of stuff. And kind of depending upon where I think the minds are of the quizzers, you know, we'll, we'll sort of, 
set up where I think we need to go on question 18. So there's both the local context of the moment itself in the quiz, but then this broader context of like, well, you know, what meet of the year is this? What, what's been the trend in prior meets leading up to this particular quiz? Uh, am I trying to break through a, um, a barrier? Sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, third and fourth chairs can kind of have a, I don't know, a, a fright barrier to answering. And if I haven't quite been able to get them past that, that sort of like the sound barrier of jumping when they don't fully know the answer and, and have a second or two to think about it, um, I can, I can maybe want to encourage them to jump a little bit stronger. I might, depending on where we happen to be, tell first and second chairs to relax a little bit. Uh, and try to encourage the third and fourth chairs at that point, because maybe in the grander scheme of things, uh, it'll work out better for the, uh, for the team overall. Uh, but, uh, but generally all other things being equal, I would just say, uh, uh, everybody jump as effectively as you can. Don't pre-jump, uh, but, uh, to, you know, learn the pacing and try to get the, try to get the jump and get the, and get the question. Gotcha. Here's another scenario. Let's say it's, Finals, and you as a team are up 10 on question 20. What is your strategy? Well, yeah, a lot depends on context. So it's in finals. I'm assuming the other teams are brutally good uh, because otherwise they wouldn't be in finals with me. I'm assuming that if we slow down at all, that the other teams are going to uh, be able to, to jump in front, get a question, and uh, they're going to be able to win the quiz as a result. So I would not recommend that we slow down. And, but at the same time, I wouldn't recommend that we jump faster than anything else. I would still go back to, you've, you've had 19 questions up until, well, maybe more than 19 questions up until this point to figure out the cadence. Uh, and that's assuming you haven't been with this quiz master before, which you probably have. Um, and so you probably have some history there in terms of being able to gauge how fast you should jump. So again, it goes back to find that ideal jump uh, speed, nail that. And if you can get the jump, that's great. And you can get the question, that's great. But I wouldn't try to speed things up for risk of erring. But I'd almost rather do that than slow things down. So if anything is going to happen, I would lean more toward the go just a little bit faster. Uh, but don't get sucked into pre-jumping because that's what the other teams are going to want you to do. I, I've kind of come to want to treat it just as if we were tied. I think if you're behind by 10 points, then you can't really end up in a worse scenario than you're currently in. But to me, there's really no difference between tied and up by 10. You're going to need to jump at a competitive pace, but not a blindly imprudent pace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I think you can, if you're up by 10, I think you can very slightly enhance your jumping speed. But the problem is, I just don't think you should do very much. Because it's it's so easy to to get into that situation and pre-jump. Um, and then you have, I mean, now fortunately at that point, you're, you're probably, depending on the scenario, you're, you're just going to be back to even again, you go into overtime and you can, you can still slug out a victory. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm a little bit more on the fence on that. I, I, I still just thinking, I'm still just thinking you want to practice how you want to quiz at an optimal rate and you want to quiz how you've practiced 
if you change anything in the moment, I mean, certainly you can call an audible. It's, it's, you know, people do it all the time. It's, it's oftentimes it's reasonable to do, but anytime that you do that, you're taking a risk of sort of, because it's, it's something outside of what you've practiced and what you've honed in for, for really the need. And then all the, the practices leading up to the need. Makes sense. Another scenario. So uh, let's say you're in a bracket quiz and your team's doing well and you're up by 20 or 30 or something and you're approaching questions 13, 14, and 15 and your team either has zero or one errors. Now, I usually, or older me, would treat those questions as a chance to jump maybe 10 to 20% faster than I would have because an error doesn't lose me any points. But... I'm now acknowledging more of the penalty from an error, which is not potential lost points, but it's not being able to jump on the next question. And I'm just curious how you would strategize those question numbers, 13, 14, and 15, if you don't have any uh, team errors and you're yeah. you know, competitively in a quiz. Yeah, so I'm very much uh, agreeing with, with adult Scott or, or modern day Scott or, or, or whatever. Um, I very much am a fan of the idea of unless there's something really obvious to be gained, uh, the cost of an error are tremendous. And it's not, it's not really about the points. I, I think it's about the break of the rhythm. The fact that you have to sit for a question, that question, even if, if it's a toss up and a no jump on the toss up, the question is gone. You don't have an opportunity for that, for that next question. So it's really not one question you're missing out on. It's two. Uh, and, and that, that can get painful, uh, very quickly. So I wouldn't really push things too broadly there. What I would do though is stick with things, um, you know, keep, keep the same kind of pressure on the same kind of speed, the same kind of intonation, every, every sort of practice thing that that's been going on. I would keep that going for, you said we're starting in 12 or 13 is the first question. I said 13, 13. So I would keep it in 13, but I would gauge the room a bit. Um, I would sort of be like looking as a coach. I mean, and, and this is not, this is more on the, you know, I'm providing advice here for coaches, not for quiz masters or not for, uh, not for quizzers. The quizzers certainly need to be focused on the lips of the quiz master and absolutely nothing else. But as a coach, I'm going to be looking at, uh, instead of looking at my team quite so much as I would have been, say, in questions six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, around 13 or probably more like, I don't know, 11 and 12. I'm going to start looking as, especially if we're up by say 20 or 30 or something like that, I'm going to start looking at the facial expressions of the other team. And this is sort of, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit evil Griffin here. It's overly competitive Griffin or something. I'm going to be looking, I'm going to be trying to discern what's going on inside their heads. And I'm going to be making what you might call a strategic use of a timeout. Um, so like if I see that our team is in a rhythm, in a pattern, we're not airing, even if we're, if we're not getting the questions or we're not getting the jumps, but I, I'm sensing that they're like, they're in the zone, right? They're, they've got a focus in there. I'm not going to do anything. I'm, I'm hardly even going to cheer. I'm just going to kind of let things ride. If I'm starting to notice that like, yeah, we're, 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 in the game, we're, we're focused, but we're not totally, absolutely in the zone. And I'm starting to sense that another team is starting to kind of 
pull it together a little bit, is starting to like, they're starting on kind of a run of a couple of questions. I'm going to call a timeout. Um, because I want to, you know, if for no other reason, I just, I want to disrupt their focus for a little bit. And if we're up by say 20 or 30 and I call a timeout psychologically, we've been up for 20 or 30 a lot longer now, even though practically, mathematically, uh, statistically, it doesn't matter at all because it's, it's a timeout. It doesn't matter how many minutes go by and we happen to be up by 20 or 30, but psychologically it does matter. So I'm going to kind of rely on that as a, I don't know, a crafty little, maybe semi evil thing. One thing I love to do as a coach and I learned, I, I kind of learned this by watching basketball. I found that so, so often when one team just has all the momentum when the other team calls a timeout, there's just raucous like cheering from the audience um, from the team that's for the team that's ahead. It's kind of like the timeout is an admission of being run over, and they kind of kind of play off of that. But I saw some coaches would wait until the next time their team scored just any basket, and then they would call a timeout, and then that timeout would happen in the midst of just silence. Because they had just scored, even if it's one basket in the midst of many for the other team. And I kind of adopted that for quizzing, too. Because oftentimes if one team has two or three right in you know a very short span of time, um, another team will call a timeout. And that team has like a really upbeat, positive timeout because they're like, yeah, we're rolling. And sure, maybe their momentum got interrupted a little bit because of the time break. But I love to have someone on my team who is kind of the go-to I would just get in there and get a correct question, and then I would call a timeout, and I could tell that the the mood was totally different in the other timeout than it would have been if I had called a timeout before my team got one correct. Now, oh yeah, you, absolutely. You don't always have the luxury of waiting until your team gets one right to stem that tide, but if if you do have the confidence in your team, I love doing that because I think it kills moment. It's a way more effective way of killing another team's momentum. Yeah, completely agreed. All right, one, zero, one or two more dilemmas, Griffin. Uh, let's do one more, and then let's move on to a few other things because uh, we're running a little tight on time. All right, so this this is a little bit obsolete because we've gone to assign back to assign seat bonuses internationals. But let's say we're at a competitive meet, so either finals of a district meet or Great Western internationals, and there are jumping bonuses. Who do you want to get them? And kind of my the the context I'll give you is. In most of your quizzes, 10 points is needed. 20 points is needed. You kind of need to scratch out points. Are you? Would you rather like have your best quizzer take these jumping bonuses when they have maybe a 90, 95% chance of getting them right? Or do you want to use them as more of like a confidence and momentum builder for not your top quizzers, but who are also good quizzers who maybe have a 50% chance of getting the bonuses right? Well, so this highly depends on two factors. Are we at internationals? Are we at district? Are we at championships at district or a regular district meet? And, and, and probably even more than that, I think it matters what's going on in the minds of my third and fourth quizzers. Uh, yeah, or, or if we're at internationals, my fifth quizzer, like, like where, where are they psychologically? What's their confidence level? Uh, what's going on there? All other things being equal. That is to say, let's say we were at internationals, meaning that, you know, my fifth chair is still a really, really good quizzer and very highly accomplished. Otherwise they wouldn't be at internationals. Um, 
So I would be much more inclined at that point to say, unless I thought there was something psychological going on where, where a third, fourth or fifth chair needed a pick me up, uh, I would say, no, just, just go with chair one, go with chair two, go with the higher percentage of the probability of, of answering the question correctly. Uh, because I think at that level, at the internationals level, you, you know, you don't, you're not having to deal with that anymore. You're not having to deal with like how motivated is my fifth chair. Your fifth chair ought to be 100% motivated. Um, they, you know, they're at internationals. Um, my, my fifth chair at internationals is by definition an extremely good quizzer. Otherwise they wouldn't have qualified. So I'm not trying to build them up necessarily. I'm trying to figure out a way of just getting the highest team score. So then I would just roll with the probabilities and have, you know, the person who, it has the strongest grasp of the material go for the bonus questions. And if they didn't feel comfortable, just sit and let somebody else get it. That's fine. But I, I generally be coaching in, in terms of like, who, you know, per, the person who has the best grasp of material gets the, the bonus questions at a district level meet, especially like a, 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 a non-championship district meet. And depending upon where in the year it is and what's going on with those, you know, that, that third or fourth or maybe even fifth at a district level, but probably not, you know, it's probably a third or fourth chair. I would be more inclined to go the other direction. Maybe it kind of depends on where those folks are. I think sometimes getting a bonus question in a third chair or a fourth chair that normally don't get questions, it can be a real kind of boost to like, oh, I can do this. I know the material. Um, and it can be this way, this sort of like a kickstart to get them uh, going. So I'd almost encourage the first and second chair to kind of slow down a little bit and say like, eh, let's go ahead and and give this out to the other team um, or not the other team, sorry, the, the, the other chairs, because I think it'll, it'll ultimately pay dividends uh, to get those third and fourth uh, quizzers uh, jumping. I think I think there is more value uh, for everyone, both quizzers uh, and captains and coaches and the program. I think there's more value in getting your third and fourth chairs to increase uh, their capability by 10% than getting your first and second chairs to increase their capability by 20%. Yeah, I think I'd agree with all that. All right, well, let's see. Um Let's move on a little bit. We're a little short on time, but uh, let's jump over to, we have some questions that came up from the material. Uh, so, Scott, why don't you uh, walk us through the first one? This is from uh, John chapter 1. From John chapter 1, verse 6, there's a chapter verse reference, what man? And it's a very common way of writing a reference question. The question's what man? And the answer is, a man sent from God whose name was John. And in talking with Griffin, he said, I don't really like this construct because the answer to the interrogative what comes from the other side of man. And so I would rather write a question more of the construct like a man what or something of that nature, which lends it to be a more clear question. And my response was, well, what man is actually a very, very common construct. I think it's very good. And Griffin said, I know it's a common construct, but I think in almost every case, there's a very easy way to write uh, a, a same type of question, a chapter verse reference question, but of a different construct that is clear. And so I was just interested in kind of discussing this more because there are definitely things that I do that I think are both valid and good and clear, but without someone kind of asking, well, why? Or explain it to me. 
you'll kind of just continue on a path forever, you know, in, in indefinitely. And so I, I just kind of wanted to discuss this this specific chapter verse reference construct. Yeah. Um, well, I think I don't have anything to say. You've actually very well articulated, and I think very fairly articulated my position on this one. Yeah. So let's say um, a very common structure in language is like a man of God. And you'll often see that question written as what man, where you could write a man of whom. Um, and most often quiz masters are accepting either of those, I guess you could call them constructs of questions as correct, as long as they're both of the same um, type. Occasionally, the longer question, like a man of what, makes it a chapter reference, but it is pretty rare. And so I really, quizzing does this a lot. So all the questions are verbatim from the material, and grammar does have a significant amount of weight when writing questions and ruling on answers and stuff. But then there are kind of quizzing-only conventions that we use that are actually very poor grammatically. So I believe it's in Peter somewhere, there's a phrase that's an inexpressible and glorious joy. And we'll write the multiple answer question, what joy? Inexpressible and glorious. Well, we're not really asking what joy. We'd never say that in a conversation with someone. We'd say like, what are the two aspects of joy, of this joy that you are talking about? Or tell me the two adjectives of joy. Well, in quizzing, we can only add one word. And so the simplest and clearest thing that we're going to do is just add that what in there. But very often in questions, that what carries a ton of meaning that if we were just talking conversationally to someone, we would use way more words than just that what. Um, and I think that's kind of a case here. Like, we're not saying what man. We're, we're saying, like, describe this man to us. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with all this, but I think it's helpful to think about, is this the most clear way of saying it? Could this be confusing to someone that doesn't know about quizzing? Because if someone's new to quizzing and you tell them that to write a question, you have to answer an interrogative word, they might see what man, and it just feels confusing because they don't know what we are implying by this word, what? Yeah, yeah, and I see that point. I think, and and to be clear, the convention what man, from my perspective, well, I, I don't think it's just my perspective. It It is definitionally valid. It is definitionally a valid, reasonable question, uh, assuming man is, you know, key enough and, well, it's a chapter verse reference, so therefore it would be. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is definitionally valid. If, if somebody wrote my question set and it popped up for me as a quiz master, I wouldn't think twice about asking this question. It's just Griffin as not the quiz master, but Griffin as the question writer looks at this and says, but there are so many better questions that are more clear. And I know that like certainly a quizzer who has been around the block a few times, you know, who's, as who's been quizzing for a while, they've seen this construct many times. They're familiar with it. It's not going to throw off, you know, the, the, the strong quizzers. And I get that. And it's completely reasonable and, and fine. I just, for me personally, I just wouldn't write it. I, I don't like these questions because I want the interrogative to be replaced with the answer. I, I, I want to be able to take away the interrogative, put the answer in the place of the interrogative and have it make a, a full sentence or no, well, not a full sentence, but actually to belong in the right place there. Um, and so, you know, there was a man, what, uh, feels better to me than what man. Of course, that may not be, that may not be key enough. Or vague enough. There was a, 
appears a bunch of times, but I don't believe was a man. Let's see if that yeah. that that is a unique phrase. Was a man. Was a man. Yeah. So I mean, you couldn't you could do that as this interrogative. You couldn't do that as a chapter verse reference. Um, there was what would be a chapter reference, not a not a uh, not a chapter verse reference, right? And then, I mean, this is kind of the thing. It it, it the more if if I'm saying, well, I I need to find a, a chapter verse reference for one six. Uh, I don't know that I would ask it that way. Um, or, or I don't know. It feels like I'm trying to take material and shove it into a question type rather than say, what, what are the most effective question types that exercise the memorization of the full nature of, of chapter one, verse six? Uh, and again, you know, what man CVR is valid. It's just, I just don't like it. <laughs> well, let's talk about another CVR conundrum, chapter verse reference conundrum from John 12, three. I had written the question, what perfume? Because I thought, an expensive perfume, it's very clear. There's your chapter verse reference question. Perfume appears multiple times in that chapter. It appears in verses 3, 5, and 7. The And then using Griffin's preferences, the what is on the side of where the answer comes from. Like, this is abundantly clear. However, the word perfume appears twice in that verse. And... So my question is, can I write this as a single answer chapter verse reference? Because there's not really an answer to the question, what perfume, at the other occurrence of the word perfume in this verse. But I don't like that. Like, I like that the quizzer would be able to figure it out and it'd be clear. But I don't like the fact that um, because one of the occurrences of the word can't be made into a reference question um, makes it valid as a single answer CVR, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so this is the thing. It is, it is definitely not a multiple answer chapter verse reference question. Um, I guess now that's interesting. Is there a rule in the rule book that says a chapter verse reference question cannot have the question uh, be ambiguous within the verse? I guess it doesn't have to be. No, it just says, like, it's, you know, a chapter verse reference is, like, material occurring more than once in the same chapter, um, and then a question can't be tricky or misleading. So, like, this is a CVR um, through and through, but then the question is, is it confusing to write it as a single? It's probably you would be left to decide if this is tricky and misleading more than anything else. Yeah, I don't like it but i can't tell you why i don't like it maybe it's because it feels tricky and misleading but the thing is the more you have verse three memorized the more this would be very clear um yeah why don't why do i not like this i'm trying to explore my feelings um because <laughs> if you think like here's a made-up verse let's say the verse says his um he was jesus period he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was. Well, if you wrote he he was whom, you could say, like, I just want to write this as a CVR because there's one answer to it. But then this other person's like, it says he was 20 times at the end of the verse. I'm confused, you know? And that's, of course, an extreme example. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I probably wouldn't write it because, I mean, I guess here's the thing. There are so many verses and there are so many questions that we can write on every verse, right? It's, it's rare that we can only get 
two, three, or four good, valid questions on a single verse. There's so many questions that we can write. So I would much rather have a fewer number of questions that were all really good than every possible question that is technically legal written on a particular verse. But that being said, that's just really my my preference. I know there there are others who who take the other side of the coin on this one. No, and like I agree with that philosophy of writing questions. I just think that you could make a case that this is one of the good ones, you know? And so I'm just wondering if you would actually make that case. It sounds like you wouldn't for this one. And I'm kind of at a loss because I think it is really, really clear, but I also don't like that as my only justification, you know? I, yeah, it is clear. I just don't like it, but I, I, I still, I, I, the emperor needs to tell me to search my feelings. Like I still, I, I need to search my feelings. I, I have not yet figured out why I don't like this. Um, it does remind me of two other occurrences, which are very similar. And that was, there was a certain reference question and that material appeared twice in the same chapter. Um, so in my head, I'm saying, well, they're both chapter verse reference questions. But I, but someone reasoned to me that because one of them was a multiple answer and one of them wasn't, then they could be written as CRs. So a CRMA and a CR. And I was like, no, like the number of answers possible on one versus the other doesn't have any bearing on whether it's a CR versus a CPR. Yeah. And I heard of another district that, like, let's say a chapter says the word of God five times in it, and that's the only time the word appears in that chapter. They'll write the word of whom as a chapter only reference because the answer is the same every time in that chapter, which, like, I understand the reasoning, but I still think it's... Um, not correct and can be confusing. Yeah, I mean, and that's where you end up with, you know, this is where Cuddy, you know, jumps into the podcast and says, you know, cross-reference question, cross-reference question. Um, and I guess that, that scenario that I just talked about is really not very different from this one. The justification is no one would really be confused. It's very clear. Like, there's only one answer to all of these possible questions, right? It's the same thing. And here, there's really only one answer. Like, people are probably not going to be confused, but that's really not a good enough justification for writing it. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Well, we are just a little bit over time here, so we should probably wrap things up. But, uh, Scott, do you have any other sort of parting thoughts before we go? My only parting thoughts are, like, after the scramble meet, it's going to be the first quizzing of the year, and it's very important for people to be in good communication with other teammates, other coaches, your own coaches, um, and just talking about the experience that you had, um, how you plan to keep studying or how you plan to stop studying, uh, anything that was confusing to you or that didn't seem right, and just, like, don't assume that you just don't understand something yet. Like, ask the question, because people always want to teach, and if there's something that doesn't make sense to you, there's probably not an abundantly simple answer. It's something that um, needs to be taught, and I think I, I always love fielding any sorts of questions that quizzers have or any sorts of questions that question writers have. So ask a lot of questions, I'd say. Yeah, totally agreed. Ask questions and send your questions to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at iq at cbqz.org. Another thing that I would sort of add into what Scott was just talking about, don't think that you don't have opportunity to memorize. Even if you've got an incredibly busy schedule, uh, you have the opportunity, like if you ride a bus to school, if you get driven to school, you can't, there's a, there's some number of minutes where you're commuting. 
if, if you uh, if, if you've got a cell phone you can throw the audio c- content of uh, John make sure it's the right translation of John the right version of the translation and all that but throw that into that audio file or set of audio files into your uh, you know uh, audio player or whatever that happens to be probably a cell phone or whatever it happens to be uh you know you can listen to the material as well as look at it as you're riding a bus uh, you can listen to it while you're driving if you're driving somewhere uh if you're walking someplace walking between classes you can turn it on listen to a couple of verses turn it off when you're into in uh, walk into your class those sorts of ways of sort of injecting the word into your sort of daily routine even if it's not full on hardcore study and of course full on hardcore study is is the most effective it tends to be a, 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 the best way to get into the material deeply but reinforcing that or even just having familiarity with the material uh you may not be able to get quote questions perfectly but you can pick up a question here or there just by hearing the material over and over again and i'd encourage you to start w- looking down that path for opportunities to sort of make that happen in sort of your your day-to-day uh, sort of experience. So anyway, I, I did talk about, you know, send questions to us at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can also follow us at Inside Quizzing on Twitter. And with that, I will wish you all good studying. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everyone. See you later. See you later.